Are you looking for your next favorite read? If you crave connection through stories, then this is a podcast for you. Welcome to Lovely Books Podcast. I'm your host, Emmy B, and it's my job to highlight the lovely books that keep you reading and connect you to the world. Hearing personal connection to great stories will bring you something to think about, something to laugh about, and something lovely to read. Welcome to this episode of Lovely Books Podcast. I am so excited to be here with Margarita Gukin-Silver. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we begin, I'd like to take a minute to introduce Margarita to our listeners. She is a freelance journalist, essayist, novelist, and an accomplished painter. Her articles and essays have been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Guardian, BBC, NPR, and The Atlantic, among others. I Named My Dog Pushkin is her memoir and was called Laugh Out Loud Funny by NPR Book Reviews. I also understand that this book has won the 2021 Pencraft Award for memoirs. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Before we dive into your book, um, would you like to share a little known fact or a fun fact with our listeners? Yeah. um, Let's see. Well, since we're talking about memoir, right, and we're talking about family stories, um, uh, we have this family history in that my grandmother, my great-grandmother, Um, In 1916, was trying to immigrate uh, from the Russian Pale to Argentina, and she got lost at a train station. And so she was the only one within her entire family who stayed. And that was 1916, a year before the Russian Revolution. So she ended up actually staying and, you know, living throughout the whole mayhem of the uh, Soviet Union and never really finding her family. And then I found myself 85 late, uh, years later in Argentina, and I was like, I'm going to find them. I'm going to look for them. And I created this whole picture in my head of the reunion, like Hollywood style. Oh, my oh, God, yeah. the family separated by uh-huh. communism and, and years of exile, et cetera. Well, uh, it didn't quite go as planned. <laughs> <laughs> I did find them. Uh, But they weren't as excited about meeting someone long lost relative as I was. So it's just a funny story in that I've invested, I think, three years and really looking for them. And then it was kind of like a non-event. There are people who are really interested um, and have you know, pretty deep feelings about the connection of family, where I came from. And then some people, they just can't be bothered. (laughs) It's just, it's completely uninteresting to them. And so I do find that there's quite a dichotomy there and a broad chasm between the people on one side and the people on the other. So that is funny. It's Um, true. Yeah. Because you are clearly, as this is a memoir, you are clearly connected to your history and to your family. So this book is a memoir, but I love that it was written in essays. I felt that that was a really fun way to sort of take your journey and um, the nuances of the different things that you happen to you and read them instead of being a timeline and a chapter by chapter, but more of an essay. Uh, but before we get more into that, can you give us a brief description of the kind of the period of the time and the events that happened in your memoir? So it starts pretty much where, um, well, I mean, I think, you know, it starts kind of in the beginning of my life. And that's why I think it benefits from being essays, because it just pulls on the important 
threads of mm-hmm. what happened to me and of what I'm trying to portray rather than, you know, have this whole narrative arc and chapter by chapter, like you said, chronological telling. And so it is about uh, coming of age and growing up um, as a young Jewish woman in, um, in you know, quite anti-Semitic Soviet Union. And then um, trying to convince my family to emigrate, to leave, um, spending about a year doing this, then spending about a year trying to get an exit visa, then spending, you know, about eight months in immigration, going through two countries, and then arriving to the U.S. and trying to become an American and trying to assimilate and trying to be a good immigrant and and trying to figure out how to do that while, you know, also being a woman. Um, so, and then, of course how to please your parents who are expecting lots of things of you and how to raise a child who was born in the United States and has different ideas of how children should be raised versus me with my baggage. Uh, So it's about all of that. Yes. And it's it's such a fun read. There's a lot of humor in your book and I love that. Did those two decisions kind of come together in terms of Um, why you wrote it this way? I think so. I think um, I had to laugh um, at myself and at certain things that happen at certain events, because that was the easiest way to get through the, to get through them and to remember them and to have some distance from them, you know, because there are a lot of them were quite traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, there's a history of a Jewish humor that comes from traumatic events. And so yeah. I think I fit into that. That's what people have said. I actually didn't think of it before I wrote it. So I'm yeah. quite happy that that's what people are saying. Um, and it just seemed like an essay format fit, fit my intention of telling certain stories within the context of what they created in my life rather than you know, having, again, an arc that would take me from point A to point B. I mean, there is an arc to the whole collection and to each essay, but I feel like the essay structure benefited this particular narrative a little more. Yeah. One thing that you said is that this, the immigrant experience is often, um, it comes with a lot of trauma and it comes, it, it can be a very, very harsh story. It can be a very hard story, depending on whether or not it was a forced migration or if it was an immigration of choice. And I don't think people in the United States really understand what was happening in Russia where um, you would really want to leave during that time. And there was a really small window. Can you tell us a little bit about that window and how you were able to sort of immigrate and leave the Soviet Union at that time? Sure. So we left uh, basically three weeks before the fall of the Berlin Wall and maybe a couple of years, I can't remember exactly, or maybe more than do that, and before the collapse of the Soviet Union and the whole Soviet system. But we left during what was called the second wave of Jewish immigration. The first one was in 79, and the second one was negotiated with Gorbachev. Um, and the U.S., um, you know, due to some trade agreement or something and uh, that he would allow the Soviet Jews to leave and, and to emigrate. And so I learned about it through some grapevine. And I said to my parents, it's either now or never. And of course, at that point, we didn't know that the Soviet Union was going to collapse and yeah. and things were going to change. We were leaving because uh, with the advent of Glasnost. In 85, uh, when Gorbachev actually um, liberalized the press and kind of gave us freedom of speech, you know, there was a lot of bigotry coming out. There's a lot of hate coming out and there was a lot of anti-Semitism coming out. Something that used to be sort of underground before was Mm -hmm. up 
everywhere. And it was becoming a bit scary <laughs> to live there. And kind of like, why are we like putting ourselves through this? Yeah. You know, and especially for me as a young person thinking, okay, my grandparents lived through this. My parents lived through this. Why, why am I doing this? If there's this possibility of me trying to get out. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And so that's how I started working on them on um, like 87, I think. And in 88, finally they agreed. And then. It took us time for the Soviet government to give us exit visas. There was a whole big process of which I mentioned in my book. And then in 89, we left. I think it's such an interesting piece of history and the part that the U.S. played in allowing you to come. I think for us in the United States, we really feel like the anti-Semitism ended with World War II. It really didn't at all. As you looked back on these experiences and, and thought about what you wanted to say about them and did find the humor, was that a really cathartic experience? Was it healing? and It um, was. I, th- I think it was some kind of, I think it was even like some kind of closure in it. Mm-hmm. Like I've always wanted to tell these stories. And whenever I recounted them to other people, they always said to me, you've got to write these down. They're just uh, incredible. And, um, and once I did, I was like, yes, they're done. They're here. They're on paper. They're finished. And there's some sort of closure to all these memories. And just to mention about anti-Semitism, it's interesting that you say that, that, you know, we in the Soviet Union, uh, the Jewish people, we always thought of the U.S. as this beacon of um, equality, as, mm-hmm. as this place where we wouldn't be um, uh, you, you know, discriminated uh, against. And then, you know, later on, as I would speak to people who grew up in some kind of places in the U.S., they would tell me, oh, yeah, we've had anti-Semitism in our communities. And I'd be like, what? No, how could yeah. that be? It's impossible. Right. And of course, now the situation is is quite interesting and different and uh, quite difficult. But it was interesting how, like, we perceived it completely as as the most amazing place in the world. Yeah. I love it when people are able to hear the story and connect with it and gain understanding of what it might be like to leave your home, the consideration of what you would have to leave to feel like America was a better place. But also, I think in America, our perspective, um, we can be a little bit arrogant and not know it because we don't realize the freedoms that we have. Um, the ease that we have, but we also don't always see the difficulties that we have. We're not always able to see the racism and able to see um, the mistreating of people. And we think we don't do it, but I think it's a level of arrogance on the part of people who have been born and raised in America um, that until you hear these stories and until you um, gather other perspectives or leave the country, you don't understand how spoiled, you know, we were this great beacon, but we might've just been a pot of spoiled children. (laughs) Can I say that? (laughs) Well, I have to say that we were always growing up with the beacon. This, this was, you know, and because of course the communist party was telling us otherwise, and you cannot believe the communist party. So automatically, you know, it's the opposite. Right. One of the things that you, from the very beginning of your book, you talk about this idea of wanting to come to America and turn yourself into or recreate yourself as an American girl. And then your book goes on to tell just a number of funny instances and stories. And as you were writing this and thinking about that sort of shift of identity, um, 
Did you do a lot of that through trial and error? Were there things that you explored where you were like, you know what, maybe this isn't what I want to be. Maybe this looks a way, but it really is a different way. Can you tell us about that experience a little? Um, yeah, I was pretty adamant um, that I was going to eliminate every single trace of my Russianness, including every single trace of an accent and every single trace of the food I ate. Um, you know, I turned my nose up at my mother's food when I went to visit her, which, you know, really uh, upset her. And now I realize I was a real jerk, but I was young. And sometimes we are jerks when we're young. Yeah. And, um, and so I wanted, like I had, I wanted nothing to do with Russia, with my Russian past. And I wanted to create this fully American identity. Um, it wasn't easy. Of course, I was realizing, you know, yes, I may not have the strongest accent, but I still spoke with an accent and people would look at me and go like, where are you from? And, uh, you know, I wouldn't understand the reference to childhood cartoons or to mm -hmm. anything that, you know, had to do with young people because I didn't grow up in the States. And, you know, certain things like going to college and paying a ton of money was extremely surprising to me because, of course, yeah. in the Soviet Union, you studied for free. So all yeah. of those things, I just kind of, you know, I it was trial and error. I remember, you know, like the cheating on exams. It was it was just flab. I was flabbergasted that nobody did it with the professor not in the room. Whereas in the Soviet Union, we all cheated. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I kind of learned by trial and error. But also with age, I think I realized that we can't really become fully somebody else. There there are pieces of us that stay intact. They tug at our heartstrings, perhaps. And there's certain things that deserve to remain. And yeah. so even though, you know, for me, I wouldn't say that I am Russian or I am, you know, whatever, from Russia. Um, I also couldn't fully say that I'm an American or I'm from America. I'm like this mix of things. And I like myself that way now. So yeah. it's totally fine. So did your perspective on all of this and did you have a shift when you had your child, um, your daughter? Yes, I think, I, well, a little later. I think it's when I realized that, oh my God, I was becoming my parents and therefore mm -hmm. I never really truly became a fully American person. And then uh -huh. maybe I need to work a little more on my parenting techniques, but also maybe it's okay to keep some of the things and, yeah. you know, like the food and, and some of the celebrations. I mentioned the New Year's Eve in, in my book. Um, so I think, yes, having her help, but not immediately after I had her, but kind mm -hmm. of a little later when she was maybe nine or 10. From your daughter's perspective, like, does she really connect with the culture of Russia? How does that kind of play into who she is? I think she does. She considers herself tricultural, maybe even because mm -hmm. she grew up for a lot of her um, formative years in Spain. But a lot of her connection with Russian food and Russian culture comes via her grandmother. And I thank my mother for doing this because I am a bit too lazy. I've gotten lazier with years. I used to speak to my daughter mostly in Russian, and then I just kind of gave it up. And when I was speaking English, uh, but there's certain things, you know, we ended up going back to Russia when she was five uh, for my husband's work. And that was really wonderful because I was able to show her firsthand how yeah. I grew up and, uh, you know, share the foods I ate. She took classes that I used to take in music school and in art school. And we even took a train. Like I we used to take overnight trains all the time. So my daughter and I took a train. So, you know, I kind of showed her what my childhood was like. And I think she's, you know, she's very taken by it. She feels yeah. herself partially from there or partially from uh, people who 
you know, are from there. So, yeah. When I first received um, your press kit and the copy of your book, one of the things that really excited me about it is my great-grandfather snuck out of Russia in 1912 and came illegally to the United States. Um, and so we had my grandfather's DNA tested. And usually when you have your DNA tested, you're like 3% here, 5%, 2%, 1%. And he was, um, 64% Eastern European and the rest Baltic States, just like you're from here. And this is the only place that you're from. But he didn't talk a lot about his country. He didn't talk very much about Russia. Is that common? Well, I mean, I think when they immigrate, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, but kitchen conversations back there, you know, we grew up with kitchen conversations. There was a culture yeah. of kitchen conversations uh, focused on some of the past, you know, and especially the past that was deemed um, important and was infused into us by all the popular culture. And that was World yeah. War Two, and, you know, the revolution and, of course, all of that um, political um, education that we received, but, you know, it became so much part of us that I think we did talk about those things. And, but as, as we immigrated, um, I think there was less of it. I think, you know, my parents don't necessarily like to talk about the past. Mm -hmm. They always remember things differently from me. So that's an interesting thing, but I actually love telling my daughter about the past. I love telling her stories about growing up and how things were and things like that. Do you think that that, um, as an immigrant, do you think that it's common that the older grandparents don't like to talk about the reasons why they came and why they're here, but then their children are more open about it? Is that something that seems to be generational to you? It's possible. It's possible. I actually had to sit down and to get my grandmother to talk and ask her questions to record her, to to have the tapes from her and from my grandfather. And um you know, just, just the comparison to you, she only talked for one tape and she mm-hmm. talked maybe for four. So okay. like maybe women talk a little more than men. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe there's also a difference. Yeah. Interesting. Was it helpful to you to have people who understood your culture a little bit or as an immigrant, did you feel like you were so focused on wanting to blend in and change and be American that you didn't want that part of you highlighted maybe? Yeah, I actually, I tell a story in the book about how when we were in Italy and uh, our relatives um, sort of uh, rejected um, the idea of having us come and join them in Los Angeles um, so they can somehow help us uh, with advice or a cup mm-hmm. of tea, we ended up having to wait because I refused to go to New York City. And New York City at that point was taking in a lots of Russian refugees or Russian Jewish refugees. So there was a huge community. And I was saying, what is the point of moving to the United States if you're going to end up in little Odessa in New York? So mm-hmm. never not going. Yeah. And so we had a big argument with my dad about it. And in the end, they agreed with me or they just gave in because I was too vocal. And we ended up in New Hampshire where we were only a second Russian family. So there were no Russian families for us to really interact with. And so that worked well for my assimilation for, you know, becoming an American. And also at that point, the Americans um, didn't know a lot about Russia. I mean, comparing them now 
you know, we came, you know, in 80, in the beginning of 90. So it was yeah. just still behind the Iron Curtain, right? Mm-hmm. So no one knew practically anything. People, lots of people still think there are bears walking on the streets of Russia or <laughs> Moscow. So, um, well, they know about the ballerinas. <laughs> that might be. They, they must have known about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was um, kind of helpful for my uh, hopes of assimilation, but not really helpful for my grandfather, who was so stuck and in the end just yeah. left and went to Los Angeles, uh, forgave his nephew, and just stayed there because the community was bigger. Yeah. As we're living in a time now, we're in the United States, we've got so many immigrants coming in from different places for different reasons. I mean, globally, it really is, there are a lot of traumatic things happening. As we see these immigrants coming into our communities and coming into our neighborhoods, what advice could you give to us that would help them with their assimilation? You know, you you always worry, like, do I ask you about things or do I just befriend you or can, do I help you? Is it insulting if I'm like, Hey, do you need help navigating anything? You know what I mean? Like what advice would you give um, community members? So I, I think the biggest advice would be don't make any assumptions or try to stay away from cliches of what that. you think that person would be or would do or would want. So I think asking and being really curious about their needs and maybe their desires and maybe the places where they need help um, would be helpful. Um, Another thing is, um, there's that uh, phrase that I always find extremely um, um, puzzling when people say, oh, well, let me know if there's anything we can help you with. And they just kind of throw that ball into your court and you're like, I'm stuck here. I just arrived. I have no idea what's going on. How do you expect me to tell you? Yeah. So um, what would be helpful is to say, hey, look, I know how to do this and this and this. I'm proficient in resume writing. I'm proficient in this and this. Are there any of these things that I can help you with? Here, you have a choice of three or four or five things. So I think, you know, that's probably a good way to approach it if you want to help somebody. When you were writing these essays and getting this book ready, did you learn anything about yourself? I know you wrote this during the pandemic, during quarantine, right? And I think that's such a cool story because that was a time where a lot of people struggled. A lot of people took on hobbies, people accomplished things, people suffered, you know? And so this introspective time, you're... So I not only wrote it during quarantine, I also wrote it during the time my husband was undergoing cancer treatment. So we were stuck in that one tiny apartment uh, near his uh, treatment. And we were living out of suitcases because we had to come back from... Greece, where we were living for his treatment. So I think I learned that I can put my butt on the chair and actually write under pressure. Hmm. And that if I need to produce 1200 words a day, I will produce 1200 words a day, regardless of how bad they might come out in the first draft. And, and that I think I learned I can try to disappear into the storytelling when the rest of the world is going through horrible things and painful things. And that I'm thankful that I can do this. Um, And I think I learned that um, it's easier to laugh at things when there has been a distance um, of many years. uh, Whereas with things that are happening right now, it might not be as easy. So, yeah, I think those were the things. Was there ever a time in your writing where you thought to yourself, you know what, does anyone want to hear this story? 
And I imagine that that's something a lot of people go through where they have this story that they want to share, but they're unsure whether or not it's worth telling. And what would you say to people who are maybe feeling that way? I think there's always someone who's going to want to read your story. Um, I've tried to get this published for years and uh, agents and publishers would always say to me, oh, it's fascinating, but there's no market for it. And and then I found a publisher who was so excited about it. And it's like, this is part of the Soviet history that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. There's some bits in here that like we've never heard about. This is going to be really fun for people to read. And that's precisely all the emails and all the things that I'm getting from readers is that, oh my God, I never knew this. And so I think there are always bits and pieces of history that we carry with us Mm -hmm. that some people will find interesting. So my, my advice would be, yes, absolutely. Write it. I love that. Um, I think our stereotypical in our mind picture of a Russian person is, as you mentioned in your book, very hard lined, straight, um, serious, maybe a little bit frightening. Like Putin, Um, right? (laughs) Yes. I was, I'm curious if that's just part of who you are, or if you had to like pull that out. You know, it's, I did not know this was going to come out when I sat down to write it. I did know I wanted to approach things with humor, but um, I think I come from a long line, apparently, of um, Russian Jewish comedians, and most of them were male. I actually do not know or remember any females. Um, But I think, you know, people who've read my book who are familiar with those comedians kind of compared it to them. Um, And also, um, I think, you know, we grew up during the hardest time of the Soviet totalitarianism, and that generates a lot of comedy. Mm-hmm. And so all of the things, all of the jokes that are being passed from kitchen to kitchen or on bootleg tapes, because, of course, they can't be passed on the television, or all of the satire that suddenly comes out of people when Gorbachev op- opens it up, I think that just kind of embedded itself in me. Although I can't say that I'm funny in Russian. Like, I can be funny in English, but I'm not sure I can be funny <laughs> in Russian. Well, before I let you go today, um, I'm sure there are listeners who are going to want to connect with you after reading this book online, ask questions, give comments, whatever. Where's the best place for them to do that? So they can go on my website, uh, uh, www.margaritagokunsilver.com. Very easy. And they can sign up for my newsletter. Um, They can also follow me on Twitter at mgokunsilver. I'm also on Instagram, margaritagokunsilver. So yeah. All of those regular places, I think you can find me just by typing my name in. And are you working on anything upcoming? I am. I am uh, working on a novel that's sort of based um, in Russia, partially. I'm actually not working on it. My agent is now looking at it editorially. And I'm working on another novel that's going to have to do with Russia and hopefully on a collection of essays as well. So yeah, lots of plans. I'm excited to see those coming out. Yeah. Well, thank you. I hope uh, people will enjoy it. Yeah. Thank I hope uh, your, re- your listeners will enjoy it. Yeah. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Lovely Books Podcast. Listeners, if you like what you heard today, please remember to comment, like, subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. 
go over to our Instagram page and comment on today's episode. I hope you have a fantastic week reading and we'll see you next time when we highlight another lovely book.